Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Scrubbed In Show. Before we kick it all off, just want to shout out our new platform, Peer. Peer is a platform that allows us to share our knowledge through quizzes, to learn, to grow an audience, and to earn a passive income. Whether it's medicine, healthcare, or something outside of it all, whether it be design, coding, or finance, everyone is a learner and educator. Check it out at www.peer.io to get involved in the future of social learning. Let's kick off season three now. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Imran, who is a medical doctor and the co-founder of Nye Health. He's super smart, and I'll tell you why. He holds multiple degrees in biology, in medicine, in public health, and he studied at some of the best establishments in the world, Oxford, Harvard. Having practiced clinical medicine for a while, he then went on to McKinsey, where he was there for a few years, and then co-founded Nye Health. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Imran. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks, gents. Uh, I'm doing well. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, thanks for the invitation. No, it's our pleasure. So if people just kind of Google search you or see what you're involved in, they'll know you're part of this super cool um, health tech startup, you've raised millions, but we want to take it back to the very beginning. A young Imran um, who's embarking on his journey to become a doctor, study medicine. So share us that moment in your in your life, and we'll you know walk towards present day. So tell us what brought you to medicine to study medical school. Yeah, oh, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, so I've thought about this a few times, and. Um, there, there are probably a few like threads to the story. Uh, just to just to put myself in context in terms of my family. So my my parents are from Pakistan. Um, they they came to the UK in the late sixties and had four children. I'm the youngest of four. Uh, there's about a decade between me and number three, so I was the youngest of four by like some way. Um, so most of my childhood actually was, you know, the kind of annoying young, younger sibling that was like. Uh, you know, older siblings were at that awkward age between, you know, like kid adulthood, and then this is like little person running around. Um, so I would say, you know, there's definitely been probably some, you know, implicit influence of my older siblings. So my older brother and older sister both went to medical school. Uh, as the youngest child, I, I always thought like, you know, I don't want to be defined by what my older siblings did. So I like to think that I made my own choice, but, you know, inevitably I would have been shaped by by their um, them as role models. But I think it was when I was a teenager and, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of the kind of classic stories. So I was a bit of a restless child. Most of my childhood um, in the classroom, I think I was basically being told I was disruptive or asking too many questions, whatever it may be. Um, so I wasn't like somebody who I who could sort of conceive of myself just sitting behind a desk all day. Um, and then on the other hand, I also really enjoyed the sciences. Um, and I like talking to people and whatnot. So I sort of put those together and I thought like, you know, medicine seems like a like a pretty good bet because you get to go down this whole like scientific route. You learn about how the body works. You know, you don't actually get that deep into the human body at school, um, particularly the subjects I did. So I had a lot of curiosity about that. And on the other hand, it coupled um, that science with the application, with talking to people. And then it has, you know, medicine has this kind of global horizon where 
you know, anywhere you go in the world, people will immediately be able to understand who you are if you say you're a doctor. And I can sort of sense that, um, you know, I spent much of my childhood traveling with my father's work. And um, there were always like doctors in our community and scientists and so on. So I had this sense that, you know, if I do medicine, then it kind of opens up, you know, the world uh, as a kind of place to work. So I think it was, yeah, it's was, it was probably something at the nexus of all of those things. And I'm sure, yeah, as I said, just kind of following, um, you know, being influenced by the role models of my, my older siblings. Amazing. And, and what was the experience like of when you got into medical school? Tell us where you went, uh, challenges and sort of. How did it shape you to be who you are? Oh, it's, it's a it's a good, it's a good question because I think it really did. Um, in my case, so I went to I went to Oxford. Um, it was uh, I kind of didn't really realize that um, the university was sort of that big a deal when I applied, uh, which is probably a good thing because I remember not being too intimidated by the process. I think in hindsight, if I thought about it, I would have been much more concerned. <laughs> um, but I I had basically I had a teacher at school that studied theology at Oxford. Um, uh, her name was Miss Duff, and she was my form tutor. So she wasn't actually a subject teacher for me, but she sort of looked after me, uh, you know, as a kind of uh, pastoral tutor. And um, she said to me, she goes, you know, uh, I know you're interested in medicine. Like I went to this college and um, in, in Oxford and, you know, she told me that it was really informal. It was very sporty and very social. And it was like quite a fun environment to, to be a student mm-hmm. in. So she encouraged me to apply. And then I had a biology t- teacher who basically did the same and, um, you know, went through the process. And I think, you know, the, my main takeaway from that whole interview and application process is I actually quite enjoyed it. Like I remember going into the interviews and um, the Oxford medical interviews are quite, you know, intense in the sense that you you go through this sort of Socratic, um, Socratic process where they're asking you lots of questions mm. So they might show you something like an artifact, like a, remember in one interview I had like a retinal scan and then they were just sort of like, you know, pounding you with these questions <laughs> and interrogating why you're, you know, why you think where, you know, what they'll say, what is this? And then they'll ask you why you think uh, it is what you've said and so on. And you keep going deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole. And I remember just really enjoying that process. Yeah. And then when I think back about the rest of medical school, the Oxford course is very much like that. Mm. You have lots of small group teaching. You have lots of contact time with your tutors. And that time is, is largely dedicated to going deep on the science. So um, putting that all together to kind of come back to your question, um, I think the key things that the course sort of imprinted on me were uh, it taught me how to like argue my case yeah. uh, and how to sort of, you know, you know, you get cold called, as they call it in the United States, where basically a t- teacher just like calls on you and you have to answer. Yeah. So that, that becomes normal. Um, and then the second part of it is, you know, I'm just going deep on the science. And I think a lot of the role models in the medical school were clinical academics. Uh, and many of them were actually were academics that went to medical school, but just be, essentially became scientists and researchers. So that really was the role model. It was very much clinical and academic medicine together. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the kind of, you know, just as an example, uh, one of the, uh, key people in the medical school um, won the Nobel Prize last year. So th- these were these were people, you know, um, uh, Professor Ratcliffe. So these were the kinds of people that were, you know, yeah. teaching you or like on the scene. Um, and there are many more, you know, other distinguished scientists as well. So I think that was really the mold at the time. And so it's quite interesting, you know, kind of, and I know 
med school university shapes a lot of the individuals we become what are some of the happiest memories you have from university like you know things that you'll remember forever memorable moments i think looking back on the time a lot of those experiences there were definitely some in clinical medicine so i remember for example there are certain rotations that really uh, were very memorable. So uh, I have really fond memories of like my obs and gynae rotation and just seeing childbirth and some of those like real life-changing events. Uh, forensic psychiatry was another one where, you know, I was in a, in a maximum security prison. And I remember just walking in there every day and being like, you know, I'm getting to, this is like a real privilege. I'm getting to see a side of society and like explore and unpick uh, you know, these, these people's ideas and thoughts that's really privileged. And then another one I would say that really stands out in my memory is um, when I when I did some travel to South Africa. So I did my pediatrics rotation in Cape Town. Uh, and there were a bunch of other medical students at the time. And I think, yeah, just that was sort of a real, uh, you know, back to what I said earlier about medicine having a kind of global horizon. That was a, a real opportunity for me to immerse myself in that uh, and to experience that firsthand. And actually one thing I did a lot of in medical school is I did a lot of travel. So there were... Uh, a variety of things you know I, I basically just threw myself at anything that that came onto my radar that looked kind of like a challenge or fun so I got into um, I got into long distance cycling so I did some like mountain biking challenges uh, cycled across Tibet and Nepal um, uh, cycled across you know uh, basically like a perimeter of France um, we did uh, in addition to uh, South Africa I did an elective in the West Bank I did one in uh, in Malaysia as well so those were sort of real highlights, you know, getting to experience those things with friends. Health tech, med tech, all of these things are kind of transitioning a lot from medical school. Based on where you are now, what advice would you give to medical students that are looking to pursue a career in digital health or health tech, med tech, or whatever it may be? That's a great question. So <clears throat> I think it's things have actually changed a lot. Um, just before I, just to kind of preface the answer, um, when I was at med medical student, which was 2005 to 2011, uh, so probably like a good decade before before you guys, um, the the like in vogue sort of um, extracurricular thing that a lot of medics did was global health. So people got really into global health, and that was actually how I started uh, exploring, you know, what I might call extracurricular stuff that start, you know, nowadays looks a bit more like tech. Um, so. Uh, what advice would I have? I would say that um, the key thing about like your years at university, uh, from my point of view just now, are about building skills, right? So um, learning useful, transferable skills that basically become a bit like, you know, if you were to make investments in a bank account or in some uh, some investment, you would, you would think of that as like investing your capital. So in the same way, like over the course of your career, building your career capital, which is basically investing in building those skills, and it can be anything. So if we just take health tech as an example, just learning how technology is built, right? Like a lot of people, you know, we're using an app just now called Zencaster. A lot of people won't actually know like how something like this is actually built. It's a bit like if you're building a house, you know, you wouldn't build a house from grains of sand you buy like blocks and you buy plasterboard and there's some level of abstraction of technology where you're kind of putting building blocks together. So just learning how that's done, if you're interested in health tech 
And these days you can like, you know, you can actually do it yourself. You know, you can, um, you can take a course online. Uh, you can join online communities where you can actually watch other people writing code. You can get a lot of this on YouTube. So those are the kinds of things that med school is a wonderful time to like indulge in those because you actually, it doesn't feel like it, but you actually have a lot of free time. And when you leave medical school, you know, in the world of work uh, and like all other kinds of grown up things start happening. Um, be, so I would, so I would solve for skills and I, I would solve for like valuable uh, and ideally rare skills. Amazing. So if you can combine a bit of like medical knowledge with, with something else mm. that enables you to actually do something useful and valuable, then I think that's like a really good place to be. Amazing. Um, Imran, I just wanted to use this moment to actually reflect on the medical course um, so obviously we live in a we live in a world now that is very digital, um, very social. We've got loads of people now interested in sort of passive income, etc., etc., etc. Now um, I've been speaking to a lot of people and a bit disgruntled with medicine because medicine makes you a doctor. And then I was thinking, does it only make you a doctor actually? Because I was just thinking. For me, when I look back at medicine, it teaches you how to communicate, build a relationship, think creatively. You're actually selling a management plan to a patient every single encounter. Um, for someone like yourself who's gone from medicine into ophthalmology, in the startup space, also in the content creation space, what do you think medicine offers, obviously apart from the basics of teaching us to be a doctor? What else do you think it offers us? The hidden skills. Yeah, what do you think that is? You know, I think at its core, um, medicine is about understanding people and like the human condition, if I can call it that. So what do I mean by that? Um, you know, it's not, you know, you, you and I will have all um, seen, you know, really inspirational clinicians that have this ability to sort of connect with a patient at a very much deeper level than you might have thought possible not just because of like through their ability to ask questions and ask the right questions and sort of listen really deeply, mm -hmm. but even in their observation skills. Like I remember there were some clinicians that, you know, would basically see a patient from the end of the room and just from reading the like secondary signs in the room would immediately be able to tell like what type of occupation the person does, some aspects of their like home environment, their social condition, the, you know, socioeconomic uh, mm -hmm. factors that are relevant to the patient's state and so on so i think you know what that's an example of is this ability to really relate to people mm. and i'm sure some of it is selection bias into medicine the interview process will um attract and select really empathetic mm. uh thoughtful people that are good communicators but i think yeah i think if you can relate to people and particularly if you can connect with their stories and you can you can sort of articulate the the like gnawing anxieties or the problems that people face in their lives or their aspirations, their goals, if you can sort of connect with those ideas and then you can draw them to the surface, though that's just a very powerful skill. And in my professional work, uh, people often call that emotional intelligence. Mm. Um, so I think if you can bring, if you can sort of nurture that through all of these encounters, which are just wonderful opportunities to sort of develop um, that skill set, combine that with, you know, content knowledge, yeah. domain knowledge in healthcare. And, you know, you, you just have to look at the last 18 months to see how healthcare is like at the front of everybody's minds. Yeah. 
you know, you guys, there's no better place to be. You're literally like learning the craft mm. of the domain which has changed everybody's life in the last two years and also rescued billions of people's lives, mm. not just medically, but their livelihoods and so on. And all the science that goes into that and the development process and so on, that's your domain, right? So uh, it's not just a thing that happens in hospitals anymore. Like health is really at the front of people's minds and the health of, health and, you know, biosecurity of populations. And these are things that that people are really, really like uh, concerned about the highest level in society. So I think, I think medicine is sort of, yeah, if I can summarize that, it's like, it's a combination of just a wonderful set of like domains that are people, you know, really sort of uh, topical at the moment with this ability to relate to people mm. and then sort of underpinned by the scientific inquiry. And there's all other things that no. sort of um, are, are in that, in that circle, but that's how, that's how I would think about it now. Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. And a lot of good insight, um, kind of moving on from medical school, graduating, tell us life as a junior doctor, and I'm more interested to know in particular, <laughs> what drew you into ophthalmology as a specialty? Oh uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, you know, honestly, the junior doctor years are a bit of a blur. Um, I, I enjoyed them. I mean, you know, there's, it's kind of, it's grueling, mm. but I think, um, you know, I was lucky. I had a great set of peers. I lived with other junior doctors and we were sort of experiencing everything at the same time. So there was a great camaraderie mm. and um, some of the people that I worked with who were my consultants or whatever, because I continued to work in Oxford, I had some existing relationships and I felt really sort of rooted uh, in that ecosystem. Mm. So, um, it was a really, it was a really good experience. And I think what I was concerned about at the time was like, how do I make a decision about my specialty? That was the main thing that was preoccupying me. So I did um, quite a few specialties that I really enjoyed. I think one of the challenges I had as a, as a medical student is that I actually enjoyed a lot of things. And that meant that, you know, periodically I would sort of fixate on a different specialty and be like, no, I think I'll do this one for my career. Oh, no, I think I'll do this one for my career. Oh, I'll do this one for my career. And they, they were it was always coming from a place of actually enjoying the work. Um, so anesthetics, cardiology, um, psychiatry, ophthalmology, you know, all of these things appealed in different ways. I think the reason I settled on ophthalmology is, uh, there are probably a couple of reasons. The first is that there was some really extraordinary research happening uh, in Oxford at the time in ophthalmology, in gene therapy. And there was one professor in particular, um, Professor Robert McLaren, who... It's very high profile now, uh, essentially uh, developed some technology in the laboratory, uh, ran the clinical trials, built a biotechnology company, had a huge um, degree of success with that company in terms of uh, its eventual acquisition, I think for almost a billion pounds or so. Oh, wow. So it's this kind of great story of like, you know, um, bench to bedside to, <laughs> to like publicly listed. Yeah. Uh, and that was hugely inspirational. And I think the second part of it is that Ophthalmology um, just brought together a lot of medicine and a lot of practical elements mm. of surgery. So there's like spot diagnoses. Uh, there's some really good procedures that have great outcomes um, with lots of cool toys and gadgets and whatnot. And then there's a sort of huge global burden of ophthalmic, um, you know, morbidity, which is actually quite amenable to existing treatments, you know, like just like refractive problems and cataract and so on. Mm. So it seemed like a great, just a great melting pot of all of these things that really interested me about medicine. Yeah. What's interesting about you having spoken to you so far, it's 
I feel you're very informed in the decisions you make. Um, you feel very, <laughs> you know, calm and you, you, you're, I don't know if you're impulsive or not. So I'm someone very impulsive. I'll see something and I'll, and I'll rush to it. Um, is the opposite. And that kind of brings us on to the next point, which is you're a practicing ophthalmologist. You're working in Oxford. There's a lot of awesome research happening. What happened or what happened where suddenly your mindset changed and now you're pursuing a different career? You wanted to enter the world of consulting and McKinsey. So tell us about that transition period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, just to reassure you, like I definitely have made a bunch of uh, impulsive uh, decisions. <laughs> in the I sort of, I build, um, I don't know if you find this, but I sort of build conviction around things sometimes quite quickly. Mm. And once I built that conviction, I have sort of, uh, if I don't act on it, I sort of feel like why I'm, you know, this feeling that I need to act on mm. it. It's like a dissonance. Um, so why did I leave ophthalmology? So in between F2 and ST1, I took a gap year um, and I went to Boston um, in the United States and I did a master's degree in public health. And so the story sort of starts uh, around the decision to do that because that was the first time I quote unquote left medicine. I left, um, you know, I left the path after F2. And that story is, is basically grounded in a few things. Part of it is like, you know, just simply I was living with a really wonderful man called Adam Ali, who's an orthopedic registrar now. I think he's probably doing a PhD somewhere. Uh, my flatmate, and he had been uh, to Boston the year before on a scholarship. And he was at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Kennedy School of Government. And he shared all of his experiences with me. And he was my flatmate. And just hearing about it, I felt like, you know, he had sort of developed these... Um, but, you know, I talked about career capital before. He had this like additional reserve of what I would now call career capital, these skills, uh, these, these like professional connections, this perspective on the world uh, and this knowledge from his time there. And I really admired that. And I sort of spoke to him about it and he said, you know, like he, he basically offered to help me prepare for the application. Um, additionally, my business co-founder, Nye Health, who was a friend of mine and a tutor of mine at Oxford at the time, Alexander, he'd also done the same thing and he did it in cancer research. So I was having these conversations. I was like, hey, you know, this seems really cool. And like, I'd love to have that opportunity. It just felt like this tremendous privilege. Now back to my uh, medical training, I mentioned earlier, I had this feeling that I was just like, not that sure what specialty to go down. And one way to deal with that um, challenge with the decision was actually to slow down the process. So to say like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna dive straight into SD1. I'm just going to take an additional year. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to survey the landscape. And this was all contingent upon, you know, jumping through loads of hoops and getting scholarships and whatnot, which, which in the end that kind of worked out. So um, I, I used the year basically to, you know, really just understand like, what can I do as a medical doctor? What are the different options open to me? And when I studied the public health course, a big part of, the what they call concentration which is basically like the modules that you do a big part of my concentration was like business and strategy and this sort of thing so when i started mixing with those students i saw that many of them were going into different fields and um i hadn't i didn't i sort of came across consulting but i didn't have anything tied down and because of the way that medical applications go i had to reapply for a job because i also got married that year and i couldn't come back to london to the uk and like not have a job because 
I felt I had to act like a grown-up. Uh, and uh, uh, in summary, um, I applied for ophthalmology. I'd applied the previous time, so basically just brushed off my application and resubmitted it. Um, you know, had my interview, uh, got the offer, and then I finished my Harvard course. And in that sort of six months, I was learning about consulting and all these different things, you know, venture capital, startups, uh, banking, you know, policy, all of these different things that sit adjacent to medicine. Then when I came back to the NHS, I sort of had a chat with my wife and I was like, look, you know, I'm about to start this ST1. I've got all these other ideas swimming in my head. Like, what do I do about this? And so we very consciously made the decision to like really commit to ophthalmology, you know, give it a proper chance um, and experience it, not to withdraw from, from, you know, before the start date to go into the job, to do the job and take it on sort of head on. And I think after about six months or so, I had, I came to this conclusion that um, although ophthalmology was, you know, in many ways exactly what I thought it would be, it didn't satisfy this intellectual curiosity that I had like peaked uh, in the previous year when I was learning about everything else that happens around medicine. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had this feeling, you know, when I started at Oxford in 2005, Facebook landed in the UK. I'm pretty sure it was 2005. It was my first year of medical school and you had to be an Oxford student with an Oxford email address to get into Facebook. This is before it was open to everyone. And the next like five to 10 years, technology just transformed every aspect of our lives. You know, iPhone was released. Uh, all of these like social networks uh, started and they grew very quickly. They changed all of our lives. And as a doctor, I had this feeling that like, you know, all of this technology and innovation is happening somewhere very far away. And it sort of goes through this long chain of events and it just touches doctors at the very end where they have to change their practice, right? Let's say someone develops a new piece of physical tech or software or a drug. It goes through all this exciting stuff and then it sort of comes down the chain and then you describe a different thing like to the, you know, to Mary on the ward uh, or whatever it may be. So I was like, I want to I go upstream. Like I want to swim closer to the like the heat the hot sort of light of that innovation and, and figure out what's going on um so these were the this was the sort of feeling i had I was like you know seven years of ophthalmology it will make me a consultant but i can't really afford to distract myself and scratch that itch when i'm a trainee um and i definitely have this itch because <laughs> it's getting stronger and stronger so either i sort of leave now and try and make it work uh, or I, you know, the longer I stay in training, the less attractive it is to leave. Yeah. So I basically pulled the trigger about 10 months into my ST1. Um, and at that point I had an offer to join McKinsey and um, yeah. the rest is history, as they say. Okay. I, just, I just want to pause it there for a moment. Um, I'm not sure if Abdul um, told you. So um, we're post um, F2. We're actually going into our second year out of training now. Uh, so, so similar to you, we've we've got this real itch for technology disrupting the sort of education sphere, but admittedly there is this anxiety, there is this uncertainty that looms over my head whenever I have to think about, okay, so where's the income coming from? How am I going to pay off all these bills, electricity bill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At that moment of which, when you decided, I'm going to jump ship this is not for me, that's for me, that's where I want to swim to. How did you actually process the emotional side to it all? The whole, 
I'm, I'm a bit anxious about that. It's a bit uncertain here. And then when you look across to your colleagues, they're all on a sort of a set path, very secure. Um, it'll be ST1, two, three, four, salaries there, everything is there. Um, how do you process yeah. that? I want to really get into your mind here. That's a great question. The first thing I should do is I should apologize because I implied that you guys were medical students. You just look so youthful <laughs> and sort of... I love that. Thank un- you. <laughs> unscathed by the troubles of the world that I assumed you were uh, at the end of your med school, but you did say you did your electives. I have to apologize for that. It's my sincere apologies. Um, So how did I deal with that? Okay. Um, You know, I think it was quite, obviously our minds play tricks. So like we remember things are not as bad as they were. So it doesn't Mm. feel that bad when I think about it, but I think it probably was quite hard. Um, The the answer is, is probably some combination of speaking to, people that had made the leap. Mm. Um, so three things, people that had made the leap. Uh, secondly, speaking to like peers of mine that I thought had perspective in some way. Yep. They weren't working at McKinsey, but they people I really respected. And then thirdly, uh, just talking to my wife, talking to my family. Um, my older brother was, um, I think at the time, starting his consultant job as an, as an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so he's kind of at the other end of the, of the process. So one thing that McKinsey did really well is um, because, you know, you, you can sort of apply and until you have to actually hand in your yeah, resignation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's theoretical, right? So there's no real cost. It's just a, you just have to put the time in. But once I got an offer, they connected me to a handful of people that were ex-medics who now worked at McKinsey. Some of them were like a year or two ahead of where I would be. And then one of them who eventually was my equivalent of an educational supervisor at McKinsey, a guy called Chris, um, who I um, you know, really dearly admire and became became a great friend. Um, these people talked to me about their transition, like, you know, what was it like? And, uh, uh, you know, would you feel like the, the odd one out when you got there? Uh, and actually the picture that they painted for me is that there were lots of people that shared my life journey in, in different ways, including as specifically as being doctors that had left. And so I felt, I sort of found my tribe, you know, instead of feeling like, you know, uh, a kind of renegade that's kind of diving into the unknown, I thought like, you know, there's a group of people over there on the other side of this fence that have similar ideas and they're doing okay. Like, you know, they're enjoying it. Then I spoke to a friend of mine and the long story short, uh, this is a gentleman called Abdurrahman Al-Sayed. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford um, and uh, MD, PhD, went back to the US. But he came to Oxford and I, we had dinner together, my uh, Zara and my wife and I and Abdurrahman. And he said, you know, because I was trying to get an out-of-program experience. I was trying to get an UP so that I could keep my ophthalmology number so that if it all went, you know, if it hit the fan, I could come back and, you know, slot in. And they said, no, the program said, you can't do that. You have to finish ST2. So I was like, another like, you know, 15 months. So Abdurrahman said to me, he said, tightrope walkers that have a safety net, they fall more often. He said like, you know, why, why are you worried about this UPI? You want to do this thing? Like, don't burn bridges with people, you know, do it the right way. But just commit to it. Like, just go. You know, you don't, don't like spend all this energy trying to, um, you know, preserve this option to go back. And then finally, my wife, Zara, she she basically, she knew that she had this sense, I think, that I wouldn't be um, satisfied until I tried it. 
And so she basically encouraged me and um, she's, she's a, she was a GP trainee at the time and said, you know, don't worry, like if everything goes terribly wrong, you know, we, we can eat beans on toast yeah. and I'll support the family. <laughs> <laughs> she gave you that free reign. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So she's, I mean, she's always been like my, my greatest supporter amazing. in many ways. And um, to this day, but uh, you know, my parents were, I think obviously they were uh, probably a bit confused. Like you were supposed to be a consultant in seven years. What is this? You're going to be a consultant next month. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that, 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 um, explain this to me, please. You know what? That... Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, not that kind of consultant, yeah. you know, not that, that. Uh, a management consultant. Um, so they, they, they got there in the end. I think they were just worried that, you know, I wasn't sort of um, being impulsive mm. and throwing it all away for, for a bit more dosh yeah. or something. Nah, I, I agree. That reminds me of, um, you know, in med school, you intercalate and you take a year out to do something. And my BSc was innovation tech and all of that fancy stuff. And yes. I remember yes. like saying to my parents, oh, I'm going to graduate this summer. And therefore, oh, you've been in med school long enough. Like it's a medical graduation. I said, nah, I still got another three, four years left for that. And they were yes. so confused because the maths didn't add up in their heads, right? Because, um, you know, yeah. a typical degree in this country or undergrad is at least three, four years. Um, and I remember okay. they were so confused. Um, but kind of, hearing your 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 mindset and your process for processing it all what was life like at mckinsey so mm. i imagine the scrubs turned into suits um and i'm sure there was long hours there but there's a lot of people listening probably avidly at this morning time thinking okay what's life as a, as a you know analyst consultant in mckinsey what's your average week average day like um so if you don't mind kind of sharing that with us yeah absolutely so Honestly, McKinsey was um, such a tremendous privilege and uh, overall was like a really positive experience. Mm. Like any job, uh, there will be people that have a really positive experience and and some folks that have a less positive experience. So that's a kind of, you know, important caveat. Um, but my personal experience there was really, really positive. So I spent three years, mm. um, I you know, lots of things felt very different. So all of a sudden I was commuting into London. I'd never worked in London. I'd never studied in London. So I was a sort of like country bumpkin, you know, trying to figure out how to get, get to the office every morning. <laughs> and we were still living in the countryside at the time here in Buckinghamshire. And uh, essentially the learning, the key thing I would say is that the learning curve was very, very steep, but the social cohesion was very tight. Mm. So it's basically like doing something really hard and new and different but around you, you've got lots of support. You've got peers, you've got like formal and informal mentors. Um, there's this whole organizational structure, which is essentially designed to help you to do good work and to help you to sort of develop as an individual. And they take those things really seriously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a lot of organizations say, you know, we want to like develop people and we'll build like professional development plans and so on. And McKinsey the the lifeblood of the organization is basically you know serving your clients to do good work mm. you know deliver like impact or however you want to define it and then developing your people mm. and so as soon as i landed there uh you know they had a two-week off-site um educational program called a mini mba yep. where they basically took the key concepts of a mba and they brought those same professors from all these universities and they put them, you all of you together in this hotel that they owned in the Alps in Austria. And for two weeks from like eight in the morning to eight o'clock at night, they taught you about discounted cash flows and the time value of money and like all these 
these core concepts and you know you were getting paid to be there so it's like you know being paid to learn in a really lovely environment with exceptional teachers and like you know it's not like medical school where on day one you had to make sure that you had gone and got all the books from the library and you had figured out like where the lectures were and you know you had like got your your hall sorted out it wasn't like that it was like they sent you a ticket they sent like a taxi to your home to take you to the airport they flew you to another country then a driver met you at the airport put you in a hotel checked you into your room your lecture theater was downstairs everything was like printed and bound and like ready to go it was just unreal. I was like, what is this? Um, you know, I remember like taking a can of Coke from the, like one of the communal areas in the hotel. I was like, you know, do I have to pay for this? And they just laughed yeah. at me. They were like, no, you know. That medic mentality, right? <laughs> yeah. that, it, it kicked in. Imran, all of our listeners are now Googling McKenzie's application portal. <laughs> yeah. No, it, honestly, it's true. Like, I, and they should give me some affiliate marketing fees for this. But, um, uh, uh, but, um, you know, like they just what the, the feeling you got was that this was an organization that was there to help you do your best mm. work and also to help you develop as an individual. Yeah. Now, there were many challenges during my time there. Um, so it wasn't like all rosy, but uh, that was a key component, you know, from beginning to yeah. end, which was like investing in your education, actually taking you off the pitch and into the classroom yeah. Um you know, hiring, uh, um, you know, voice coaches from the, from, from some drama school to help you with your elocution and all of this kind of thing. You know, they really took a holistic approach. Mm. So the second thing I would say is that, you know, the work and the skills development was, was super helpful. So doing something like that early in your career, mm. you know, back to the idea of like, you know, career capital and yeah. whatever it may be. Um, building those skills, which I would define as, you know, just like common sense business thinking, uh, which is understanding how finance in a company works, uh, understanding, you know, the basics of marketing and sales, um, learning a little bit about lots of different industries Mm -hmm. and different functions in companies, um, and then learning how to do analytics using Excel, learning how to build documents that are, um, you know, useful for like actually influencing people in organizations, whether it's uh, what they call uh, dot dashes, Mm -hmm. which are like Microsoft Word documents or decks like PowerPoint decks, you know, all of that stuff is, is, um, is a real skill. There's like an art to it within corporations. Mm -hmm. And McKinsey was like a great school to learn that. And then the final thing I would say, which is really the most important thing. And it's a kind of compass for me in my career that I keep coming back to, which is the people. Um, and one thing about uh, people at McKinsey is that, you know, generally they are like just very collegial and supportive of each other. You'll always get, you know, uh, a few bad apples here and there or uh, people that don't like represent the values or whatever it may be. And people make mistakes as well. But in general, people are super supportive. They take mentorship really seriously. They take coaching yeah. and feedback really seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll give you difficult feedback, but they'll help you to, to kind of adapt with it. And, um, you know, you work so intensely with people that you kind of form friendships. Amazing. You know, so I still to this day have uh, friendships from my time there. You know, there's two people that I WhatsApp to different points during the day today uh, from my time there. And I've been out for four years now. Yeah. Um, so so th- th- those are my kind of key takeaways, you know, uh, to, to kind of recap um, 
this real sense of like being embraced by this tightly knit community, mm. wonderful people, real investment in your professional development and education, uh, you know, really good exposure to a whole bunch of like business skills and industries and so on. Yeah. That, that's absolutely incredible. And um, it's something that NHS workers are screaming out for. But I guess in a in a public sector system, for those values to be brought forward, I think it's down to the people and down to us who's, who are working within the NHS to actually foster those same ethos. It'll be a lot, of, a lot more difficult, but I think it's possible. Um, a question I have is now, so you've told us all about investing in yourself, sort of learning and going out there and thinking about how can I, how can I sort of better my uh, career capital. Tell us about now your day-to-day at McKenzie. What were you physically doing? Because it's a, it's a very unknown world for a lot of our listeners. Uh, good question. Um, so there was there was some commonality. So I think actually you probably can generalize uh, at the junior level. So basically you work in these small teams. They're typically what they call an EM, which is an engagement manager, plus one, two, three. So if it's, let's say it's an EM plus two team, mm-hmm. you've got an engagement manager who's someone who's a couple of years usually ahead of you at the company. And then you've got your plus two. So as a junior, you'll be one of the plus two. Mm. So ah. uh, it will be like you and another analyst or another junior associate or associate. And um, essentially, you 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 have these sort of uh, what they call partners, junior partners, partners, senior partners that are above the engagement manager. And you as a team kind of work under the influence or direction of the partners. But they're not there full time. So they might be there for key conversations. They might be there for key meetings and they'll have a a long-term relationship with the client. But day-to-day, it's basically you and your manager are like on the ground, face-to-face with your client, delivering the work. And a typical day for me would start, I'd actually start working sometime between 9 and 9.30. I used to get to the office. um, This was before COVID uh, and the office was in Leicester Square. They've moved now, but I used to get to the office at like 8.00. Uh, I was on my my Brompton. Um, uh, I would there was a gym in the office, which was great. So I'd go straight to the gym. Then there was a shower and an iron. So I would like take my shirt bag. I had like my uh, you know suits and jackets. I had a locker, so I'd take like a jacket and chinos out, then clean shirt, iron my shirt, <laughs> my boxes and socks, and bring every day as well. Um, and then there was also a canteen in the building, so I'd grab my breakfast. Like usually, it was a bowl of porridge. Uh, then I'd go up to my desk and it was flexible seating. So if you've ever been into any of these co-working spaces, it was basically like that. Um, so I'd sit down, open my computer. And then during the course of the day from then to about five or six o'clock, you'd have um, some time blocked out where you would be doing the work, which is basically, you know, you're not meeting with anyone, but you're sitting with your team. You're either working on Excel or uh, you're doing interviews and taking notes or you're like researching Uh, documents, internal documents, external documents. You're calling your colleagues in the company who may have expertise in that space. Um, And you're basically like answering this question that you've been set as a team. And then um, occasionally you might have meetings. Uh, So you might have what they call problem solving, which is basically you meet with your senior people, like your partners or whatever. And then you start doing this kind of like um, whiteboarding type problem solving together. And typically someone will prepare something. So the EM will like bring a document and say, you know, today we're going to problem solve the patient journey for rheumatoid arthritis. We want to know like 
how does it look? Because we then want to start measuring how long patients spend in different stages of the patient journey. So you'll have basically a kind of some some kind of debate or discussion about that for like an hour. And then you'll take it away and you'll do whatever's kind of come out of that meeting. Um, and then occasionally you'll have client meetings. So sometimes you might actually be working and doing all of what I've just described at a client site. You may actually have gone on a Monday morning and be doing all of this uh, in the client's office in Germany or the United States or somewhere else. Um, uh, and then you might have client meetings. So, you know, you go, you present your work on a kind of interim basis, you get feedback, you might interview your clients. Um, and then if you travel, uh, typically you come back home on a Thursday evening. Now, if you've flown west, uh, then if you fly back on a Thursday evening, you actually land on the Friday morning because of the time zone. Um, so if you're traveling, you're basically away Monday to Thursday night or Friday morning. Uh, and then there's this kind of culture of being back in the office on a Friday and then people don't work too hard uh, <laughs> on Friday, You're sort of wrapping things up. Um, but on the weekdays, yeah, you start at nine, you might have a break for dinner. Or in my case, if I was in London, I would go home, mm. um, say at five, between five and six, and then I'd be back online at 8.30, probably working to like 10.30 or 11. Okay. So intense um, and Friday. variable. Um what would you say what would you say was the most difficult bits and what put the put the sort of uh the joy what what really made you happy when you were there apart from the learning because i know you love self-investment and sort of investing in yourself you can't say that bit was it the gym <laughs> was it the gym the canteen <laughs> yeah the hardest bit was like um i think like a lot of people that end up at a place like that for the first year just assume that they're like a hiring error mm. Uh, and they kind of slip through the net. So there's a bit of that. And then if you do make a mistake, uh, you know, you, that can compound those feelings. So there's usually a bit of that at the beginning. So I remember there were like one or two instances where, you know, we were like really rushed um, to deliver something. The, the reasons I can't remember are probably not relevant, but, you know, trying to deliver something and then getting something mixed up at the last minute, presenting it and finding that there's a kind of problem there. It's been, it's been called out. Obviously those types of things are super embarrassing yeah. and, um, you know, it's very challenging, very challenging to deal with in the moment. So whenever you're doing something very, very intense, you know, occasionally that sort of thing does happen. Um, I would also say that if I, there were certain times, this didn't happen to me very often, but there were certain times where I had to spend quite a lot of time away. And I actually avoided this by and large. Um, but I know that that kind of thing can be quite difficult, yeah. you know, depending on whatever's happening at home or, uh, you know, what other commitments you have. So, and they're usually, they're, they're very good about helping you, you know, seeing the bigger picture of your life. In terms of the things that brought me the joy, it was really the sense of like achieving something for your client, mm -hmm. you know, seeing that you've done something that has really moved the needle. I mean, there's a lot of cynicism in the world about consulting. And I think it's worthwhile to like ask questions about, you know, these types of services. Mm -hmm. But I have no doubt in my mind, having seen firsthand, there are many projects that we did where we really moved the needle. Yeah, in a big way. So we let's say that the client had to answer a question and they just didn't have the capacity or the resources or they didn't have the experience to answer like that type of question. And the stuff that the teams would do in a very short period of time is really extraordinary. Yeah. You know, an EM plus two team doesn't sound very big to like three people, mm -hmm. 
you know, and the manager might not even be making the slides. It might be the juniors mm-hmm. and the manager is just like quality controlling and managing the client relationship. But what that tiny team can produce in a week is like hands down extraordinary um, compared to what I've seen elsewhere. And the reason, one of the big reasons is that behind the team, this is like basically army mm-hmm. of support services. No, really like, you know, you could take, you could take a piece of paper mm-hmm. And you could draw a slide. You could just scribble a slide and you could put like placeholders for pictures and say picture of sheep, picture of whatever. And you just take a photo of it and you'd send it uh, by email to a team that would 24-7 make slides. Wow. wow. (laughs) And they they would return it to you like three hours later. So, you know, I would go to bed. I had this laptop where I could draw on the screen. I'd go to bed like having scribbled some slides to take my analysis and turn it into something that looks good. Wake up in the morning and it would be there in my inbox. That is That's incredible. You know. that we need access. So you just, <laughs> yeah, so so you just you just move fast. You know, say you say like on Monday you want to answer a question and you need like 25,000 consumers mm. to fill in a survey to share their sentiment about something. You could have that data by like Wednesday. Oh, wow, incredible. Right? And then you could have it like analyzed by Thursday and then in a professional looking slide deck by Friday. And like, the th- you know, those types of things take months yeah. in other organizations. Yeah. That in days. That's, that's impressive. The, the speed at which things happen and the efficiency. Um, and that kind of brings me on while we're talking about McKinsey and kind of the corporate world, the city life, as you say. Um, you recently put out a video about permissionless leverage, your career, how things are changing. Um, and I did a similar video a few months ago about, you know, people landing jobs off Twitter. And I personally think CVs will become redundant because your social feed um, in itself is a, is, a, is, a, is a document of what you've been up to, your hobbies and interests. Tell us a bit more about that. How do you think the future holds um, in terms of people that want to break out of traditional careers or land a, a job somewhere else? Uh, tell us a bit more about that because it was quite an interesting video. I so just to just to yeah just to recap the idea the simple idea is that basically in the old days you had to walk through certain institutions pick up some credentials and then you kind of had in inverted commas permission to do something. So medicine is an obvious example because you're regulated, mm-hmm. but if you take any traditional like city career, you know you had to go through a certain mm-hmm. university and certain internship and blah blah blah. Now, um, as more and more of uh, like the world of commerce and industries are basically going digital or going online, the skills that you need and the, um, the where you can get those skills have totally changed. Mm. So now you can basically learn almost anything you can learn on the internet. Uh, you know, there, obviously there are going to be exceptions to this, but the... Um, the opportunity for anybody with an internet connection and a decent machine is that you can learn if you are, <laughs> you know, if, if you have the kind of persistence and you have the, you put the reps in, as they say, uh-huh. um, down at the gym, if you put the reps in, you know, you can learn anything. You can learn design, you can learn how to be a really good writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a skill that's really underrated, I think, by many people. Um, you can produce content, uh, you can write code, you can do any of these things. And these things are really important because, as you said, this idea of leverage is that, you know, you create something that has, an, has a zero marginal cost yeah. to scale, which means that 
let's say that you create a video, uh, Abdul. Um, in producing that video, you spent five minutes talking, 10 minutes planning, half an hour editing, half an hour putting it online. So if one person watches that video, for another person to then watch it, you don't have to do any additional work. And in fact, a million other people can watch it and you've done no additional mm -hmm. work. So that's this idea of leverage, right? So, um, you know, bringing all of that together is to say that the thing about media, in the same way that code scripts machines, media and ideas script people's minds. They change how people mm -hmm. think. So producing content is to people what producing code is to machines. Mm -hmm. And when you... Um, learn these skills which enable you to produce this content and to share that knowledge and effectively just help people or add value to the world in some way, then you start to build influence, you build distribution, you build recognition for what you can do. And so when anybody has a need or anybody wants to um, hire somebody to help them with something or find a business partner uh, for, for an idea that they have, then you're already like seeding yourself yeah. mm. Exactly. <laughs> an opportunity for yourself around the world. And, and you know, the longer you do that and the more cons consistent you are, that translates in time to trust because people see either you've made yourself vulnerable in some way, you've shared something about yourself that people don't normally share, or you've really gone out of your way to help people. You know, you're sort of sincere in trying to like teach people something. So that builds a lot of trust. That builds a lot of um, social capital. So these become things that, that start to pay dividends over time. And they can pay dividends in different yeah. ways. And I think the, the key thing for me is that like, even though medicine is, is like unlikely in our lifetimes to become something you just learn on YouTube and then go and practice, uh, the point is that, that if you take a traditional job and then you layer on top mm. um, these skills and this, this you know, build that leverage by, sh by producing that content, by creating products on the back of your knowledge. Mm. Yeah, either tech products, platforms like you guys are doing just now, or media as a product, then those things start to compound over time. And they will uh, enhance or they will contribute to the underlying core work that you do, uh, either by giving you a share, you know, greater share of voice yeah. in the public mm. conversation around coronavirus as a doctor or around some legal issue as a lawyer or a barrister yeah. or, or whatever it may be. I think in design and code and, and those sort of digital crafts, it's even more obvious how it helps. Yeah. Definitely. I, I, I've seen sort of uh, consultants, consultants now sort of leveraging the social media space, Instagram, just to use that to sort of increase their sort of publicity, their private work, etc, etc. And you're right, they're leveraging that for their core work, which is in the private sort of uh, clinic work that they do. Um, so we are seeing, we are seeing that transition. And I think the new generation of consultants um, in the medical space and surgical space, they are more sort of willing to put themselves out there, content create. Uh, there's there's uh, ENT surgeons on uh, TikTok. Who would have thought that you'd be on TikTok swiping across and it's a, it's a surgeon, they operate on you. I think, I think that's right. And like the other thing I think about content creation and putting yourself out there is that, you know, in, in tech, they have this concept of like shipping. Mm. Uh, so shipping your product, yeah. right? And content, you ship content yeah. in the same way. Like every time that you press that publish button, 
on a video, on a blog post, or in the world of products, when you ship a product, when you release a product to the to the public, like there, there's always a certain um, feeling at that moment, a trepidation. Yeah. What if I didn't cut out the ums and the ahs in that video? Yeah. What if there's a bug in my code? What if there's, you know, the platform is not quite right, whatever it may be. And actually getting comfortable with that feeling and like learning to love that feeling at the kind of precipice of, of taking that risk, mm. I think it's just an amazing thing because with any of these things, like I'm a firm believer that the more you, um, the more risk you take in terms of producing content, the more you ship your tech products mm. and the faster you iterate and learn, the better you'll yeah. get. So if you can ship and keep shipping and keep like, you know, just living in, you know, being comfortable with that risk, you'll get better quicker than anybody else. Um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people are just nervous about putting their ideas out there and uh, taking the plunge. Um, I think one person that's done a really good job of like popularizing this idea is Ali Abdal, yeah. who's also a medical doctor. Uh, he's got some really wonderful videos where he just says, you know, just make the first hundred videos, just write the first hundred articles that they be good. Just get them out there and you'll look back and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I've come such a long way. Exactly. I guess one scary thing is um, cancel culture. So on the front of everyone now getting into publishing and doing all of this jazz, we are now seeing sort of uh, an anti-movement where they call it cancel culture, isn't it? Where if they don't like what you put out there, they do genuinely lynch you in the social space, isn't it? What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean... uh... I think fortunately for me, I haven't, I haven't, you know, I think it's a scary thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that, um, I'm not going to pretend that it's not, uh, a frightening prospect. Mm. If, if from my personal experience, you know, I, I think generally I'm not talking about those issues that are on the kind of, um, uh, fault lines of a kind of culture war. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there's issues. Like if you start talking about masks or you start talking about, <laughs> Yeah. Um, vaccines it's kind, of, yeah, it's kind of ludicrous that these things have become frictious it like doesn't make any sense but when we talk about tech products mm. uh, shipping your product you know that that type of mindset you know you could take a company like facebook you know they have this motto maybe in the past more than the present but move fast and break yeah. things you know they had this idea that basically um you prioritize velocity you know you want to move quickly towards something yes. uh, and you tolerate some error yeah. along the way um, and I think they changed it to like, you know, ship, move fast with stable infrastructure yeah. as they call it. <laughs> um, but, you know, that idea, mm. when you take that idea and you, you manifest that in content creation, writing, interviews, whatever it may be, people will make mistakes. People will say things that are not very well thought through. Yeah. Uh, they um, might not take the care to... Uh, you know, position something quite the right way uh, or to like signpost mm. that, you know, I'm being yeah. deliberately provocative here to make a point or whatever it may be. So, but society has sort of become very unforgiving yeah. uh, in that way. And I think that's a real shame. I think people should be allowed to make mistakes and like not be written yeah. off. I, I think like um, the thought that people could be basically, you know, blacklisted yeah. in some way something that happened in the past, I think is really dumb. You know, at the same time, you know, the, be the best way to show the kind of stupidity of something is to engage with it, not to like, <laughs> you know, it's to dismantle it in public, right? Not to censor it. And so on. so, so I'm a believer in that. I think there's probably stuff 
which which is at the fringes, which is like you know actually um, inciting violence and yeah. things like that. I think that that's a separate yeah, issue. But but on the whole, both me and Ams and like yourself were pro content creation, getting yourself out there, building a brand around yourself, um, yeah. because it does lend to opportunities, um, and it's important for us to capitalize and leverage that. I do have certain ideas or thoughts sometimes that I think might be like more risky yeah. or uh, might be more provocative. Uh, hopefully not for the sake of being provocative, but uh, I do have that thought as well. So like, as I build confidence myself, mm. then I hope that I can be less filtered. Yeah, yeah I agree. Because that leads to more interesting conversation. So, you know, in product, yeah. when you're designing product, there's this, I have this kind of mental model of like the product having a personality. So like it's quirky in some way, it's um, expressing something unusual. It's, uh, it's eye catching, it's uh, pointed. Yeah. It's not like amorphous. So in the same way, I, I think that I don't want to be I don't really think of myself as a content creator because I'm not like that regimented with it and just put the sporadic things out there. But I don't want to be a like bland yeah. content creator. I want to be some uh, someone who's actually adding something useful to the conversation because there's so much content already out there that anyone can produce like another uh, video on X, Y, or Z and it doesn't actually move the conversation forward. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that relatable or it doesn't like take a risk in some way or doesn't challenge something so I want to do that more um, because I think when you're early in that journey and you're a bit nervous about uh, the risk, whether it's cancel culture at the extreme end or even just people's views about you, which actually people don't, people's lives are so busy and wrapped up in their own lives that yeah. they're not judging when you publish stuff. But inevitably, that's a concern. And I think the impact of that is you kind of you kind of uh, sanded down the kind of sharp edges of your contents that it almost like slips out into people's news feeds without causing any offense. Yeah, yeah. Whereas really what you need to do is I think just be more like authentic. Yeah. No. So that, that's a journey that I'm on. De definitely agree. And I love the, the what you said about when shipping a product, making sure it has a personality. We've literally just launched a new platform or like a soft launch. And we were kind of picking and choosing which influencers to kind of you know to represent the, the 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 platform and the culture we're building um which we'll share with you later and it was so like we didn't want it to feel like we kind of vision like you know what would people be doing when they're using this product or platform mm -hmm. you know is it a coffee shop thing is it a library thing mm -hmm. what type of individuals aspire to use it um but yeah and it was the same thing like what's the personality when people look at this thing like yeah this is cool this is quirky i want to be seen using this uh, it, it reminds me of um, we had a brand coach. Yeah. We were being coached now by some, um, Emma Sexton about basically uh, how to develop a brand. And I remember she was asking us questions like, okay, so your product, what type of drink does it like? What clothes does it wear? And it was just getting us to think yeah. in a completely different way that we've never been trained for before. And yeah, it just yeah. it just really resonates. It just yeah. really resonates. That sounds like a really fun process that you're going on. And I like, you know, I really um, admire and respect uh, you guys taking that plunge and, you know, putting yourselves out there like that because it, it takes guts. You know, there's so many, so many people out there that um, have opinions about yeah. things, but they never kind of got out of their armchairs uh, uh, and jumped in the ring themselves exactly. and, you yeah. know, took a few hits. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Speaking about product, what I'm conscious of, we've taken up a lot of your time. The last thing, no and I think our, our listeners might just cancel us if we don't cover it, is, <laughs> um, and we'll end on here, I promise, is tell us a bit more about Nye Health. Yeah. We've, we've covered you as a clinician. We've covered you as um, a consultant at McKinsey. Um, and the more recent drastic change, you know, with co-founding Nye Health, tell us the founding story um, and kind of patch us up to present day in, you know, in a brief period of time. Absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, this is this is obviously a big, been a big part of my life for the last three and a half years. Uh, you, where the story ends actually today, where I'm actually moving on to uh, the next chapter. Oh, so uh, I'll tell oh, you all about that, like <laughs> going around the whole life cycle. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting story. Um, so basically, um, I started Nye with a dear friend of mine called Alexander Finlayson, and uh, he. Uh, was a like a tutor of mine or a mentor of mine at medical school. He was a few years ahead of mm. me. And you remember how I said when I was at med school, the the frontier of like medics doing something outside their course was global health. So Alexander was one of the real um, leaders of that space, uh, you know, in the kind of, uh, in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. He founded a, a company called Medicine Africa, mm. which, um, you know, before Skype and WhatsApp and all that, uh, built a platform that enabled UK-based clinicians to provide teaching and peer support, Amazing. educational support to students in basically anywhere in the world. But most of the work was in Somaliland, yeah. um, which is, uh, yeah, you know, really impoverished and was a very challenging environment, uh, especially at that time. And I got involved in Medicine Africa, I supported uh, that project, and we basically did a kind of lift and shift um uh, of the model in the West Bank in Gaza. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with a few other students, I uh, basically ran that project under, you know, Alexander's wing, as it mm -hmm. were. So I was a kind of, uh, yeah, you know, I was kind of a student, but doing this sort of on the side and working with other um, junior doctors and registrars to kind of deliver the content. So that's where our relationship started about, you know, 2008 or nine. And then um, essentially when I was at McKinsey in 2018, uh, Alexander finished his GP training and um, we started talking. He he had this sort of real impulse that he wanted to start a company mm -hmm. and he was talking to me and I was interested. And, you know, I, I sort of got to this point at McKinsey where I felt like I had learned like a reasonable amount of stuff and felt like confident enough on my feet to like take a risk. Mm -hmm. And I also was at a stage in my life where uh, we just had our second child and um I thought to myself, like, you know, this is not going to get any easier in the future. Like, if I want to start a company, uh, it's not going to get easier when my kids get older. It's not going to get easier if I have a third child, which we have since. Mm. Um, so, you know, why not? And at the time, I also read something that Jeff Bezos had written in one of his shareholder letters about, like, distinguishing between decisions that are reversible versus irreversible. Mm. And leaving McKinsey at the time was very much a reversible mm. decision. From my point of view, I thought it was reversible because I'd just been promoted. I was in good standing and so on. So we started talking about this. And then eventually, um, you know, we had some commitments from investors, mainly people that Alexander knew and uh, some friends and family of mine. And we had a small, what you might call a pre-seed round. Mm. So that was, for me, was like, right, this is getting serious. Uh, so <laughs> we, we initially... Um, we built a telemedicine product. So Alexander was, you know, really the kind of driving force behind the product vision. 
um, of especially of our early products. And um, it was uh, basically a video platform. And what we were trying to do is, you know, there were these other startups that brought sort of video telemedicine into the UK. Mm. You know, either you had to pay for it or they set up their own GP practices or whatever it may be. So we had this vision that basically we wanted to take that tech and give it to the 8,000 GP practices so they can use it with their own patients. So we didn't want to hire doctors, but we wanted to create the product that enabled existing GP practices to use telemedicine with their patients. And we basically went through a process where we were like building all this stuff. It was like really pretty, really shiny. Mm. Um, It was video and essentially none of it really stuck. Um, You know, we went through a bunch of iterations. The one product that stuck really, really well was actually a telephone product. It seems really Mm. basic. His telephone is like more than a hundred years old, but essentially what we did was we built like a internet based telephone system that just had some improvements and it had like the ability to run, you know, in basically infinitely scalable number of simultaneous calls. And inside the context of a GP practice, that was incredibly powerful because they had these like wired systems where they could only have like four calls at once or five calls at once. And what happened during, obviously during COVID is that they all shut their doors and they all switched to telephone consulting. So they were there like with these phone systems that they were just not fit for purpose because they couldn't run their clinics Mm. because they didn't have enough simultaneous lines or they couldn't use it from home um, or they couldn't use it on their own devices. They couldn't use their work phone from their personal device. So they'd have patient data all over their phones. And so we came along (laughs) with this product um, which enabled them to basically make clinical phone calls, but also video mm. from anywhere, from the practice, from their computer, from their smartphone, from their home. Mm. Um, and it was just really useful. And the product, uh, during that time, I was um, head of growth for the company. And uh, we scaled to about 10 to 15% of the primary care workforce. Oh, wow. wow. Uh, and we're doing one to two uh, million consultations a year. Um, on a run rate basis, um, delivered millions of consultations in total as well. And uh, yeah, so that was like a real uh, roller coaster. You know, the team worked super hard to keep the service, uh, you know, yeah. going when it was scaling really quickly because there was a lot of pressure. And then um, towards the uh, Q2 of 2020, yeah. Q2, Q3, we got asked to support the AstraZeneca vaccine trial. <laughs> Um, because they needed uh, some tele, basically they needed some telemedicine capabilities, and a lot of the traditional healthcare telemedicine providers just wouldn't work with, be able to work with them. Mm. So we provided a piece of tech that was used in the trial, and then that formed. You know, so there was a kind of a fun news article about it, and then that formed like a kind of lighthouse case for us. And then there were like you know a dozen or so other studies yeah. um, that we worked with, and so over time that has evolved from we starting off in primary care telemedicine to now moving into what we call um, like a decentralized clinical trial platform. Amazing. Um, and by decentralized, that's a lot of jargon, but essentially what that means is um, a product where you can run a clinical trial yeah. in a decentralized way, which means that patients can stay at home. Mm. So what we can do with the application, uh, you know, basically, you know, you can, you can send patients um, the types of forms and questionnaires that they fill in in clinical trials, you know, about their symptoms, yeah. about their progress. Um, you can sort of program that into the app. Uh, you can do telemedicine in the app so they can do their doctor visits, nurse visits. 
And then you can also, um, we have integrations with medical record systems. So patients can basically with their permission, you can move, uh, you can enable the trial sponsor to access parts of the patient's medical record in their healthcare record. Mm. So you can sort of gather, in theory, you can sort of gather data yeah. for the trial or you could look at patients' eligibility for trials, that sort of thing. No, that sounds amazing. amazing. And is... So that's, a, yeah, that's the story in, in a nutshell. It's a bit of a long, yeah. long-winded no, answer. It's super but... cool. And like, we're big fans of like entrepreneurship and the startup world. Um, and with the decentralizing thing, we want to decentralize education to a certain degree, right? Um, amazing. So, yeah. um, so you mentioned that it came to an end. So have you changed roles or are you kind of moving into something different? So what's the future? What's the future? Yeah. So uh, it, it's still uh, TBD actually. I'm still, <laughs> um, uh, we're just wrapping things up, but, uh, um, you know, I, I always thought, um, you know, I've really enjoyed the journey. I mean, starting a startup and going through those early stages is, is really challenging, mm-hmm. but it also teaches you like a, a whole bunch of wonderful um, professional and life lessons that are very hard to get anywhere else. Uh, so it's been a real, it's been a real privilege. And I guess, um, you know, this is something that I wrote about actually a couple of months ago uh, on my blog, which is this idea that like as an entrepreneur, I want to start or be involved in multiple companies over my career. Mm. So I want to roll the dice many times as it were. Amazing. Um, and for me, this, transition basically represents you know me rolling the dice again saying um you know i'm going to take and have another go have another shot um and it's come at a time where you know the company is 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 in a stable place in terms of the the team it's we've got you know wonderful team really really talented uh, colleagues um a good amount of capital Mm -hmm. for the next few years so the team can continue to build and so Mm -hmm. on um with like a really clear direction um, and uh, my co-founder Alexander is doing a fantastic job as, as CEO um, in sort of leading that uh, uh, that operation. So from my point of view, it's sort of not a bad time. If I wanted to step back, um, it's a kind of reasonable time to do so and sort of continue to support as a shareholder uh, from the sidelines, and then basically figure out like what do I do next. You should, so you that's should, the process. Join us. Going the We're gonna have to put the. <laughs> once we get off this call, we've got another call with you. Yeah, <laughs> you should come. Amazing. Okay, I'd love to hear yeah, more about no, what course. you guys you are should, doing. I think you amazing. should come join us. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I don't know what to say. It was um, a wonderful tour of your your career up into to date. Um, we covered lots of different things, lots of different topics. I think we, we delved into a few things, which were super fun. Um, I hope our listeners find some inspiration, some motivation from it. Um, and I'm sure they will. Um, and it goes to show that there are so many paths you can take, you know, in the world in terms of career and fulfillment and happiness. You don't need to kind of rush and become a consultant. You don't need to rush and do what everyone else is doing. Um, you don't need permission to put yourself out there mm-hmm. and kind of share content yeah. with the world. And I think you, you covered that really well. Um, I want to thank you, Imran, for taking the time out. I'm looking at the time. It's been more than an hour and 20 minutes. But Flat. an hour and 20 minutes no, is gold. Absolute yeah. Absolute gold. <laughs> no, no, you, you guys have been too kind. You know, the, the one thing I might say, and it's been, I've been, I have a, since childhood, I've been told I talk too much. So, <laughs> so uh, but the one thing I'll say is, um, you know, as medical students, you really are, or as junior doctors, you really, or doctors of any kind, you really are well positioned mm. to do something, you know, almost like anything that you you might dream of. Yeah. Because, 
you know, you have medical, you have knowledge of biology, yeah. you have knowledge of healthcare and patients and people's problems. And, you know, you're, you're trained in like one of the most useful, universally useful disciplines in the world. Okay. And there's so many ways that you can, um, you know, combine that those skills with additional skills or working with people with complementary skills uh, and really do impactful work. And there's so much, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but so many transferable skills for junior doctors and for medics that people who are sitting there wondering or maybe feeling confused or disorientated, like, you know, uh, just know this, that you're in a wonderful position and, um, you know, work hard and learn useful skills yeah. that are valuable mm -hmm. and, and uh, rare if you can and combine those with your, with your healthcare experience and, you know, uh, many opportunities will open up for you. I'm I'm confident of that. Definitely amazing. Um, thank you for for that little pep talk at the end. We love it. Yeah, we actually did. Um, I'm gonna cut cut that and put that at the beginning. We're gonna over, we're gonna override your your bio. Um, no, but... th thank you so much, Iman. I think you're a you're a beacon of light. For I think one thing we want to represent on the podcast is we we bring on guests who seize opportunity, and you're someone who seizes opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and I think that's what we want to encourage with our listeners it's something that I want to do and your journey is incredibly inspirational and it inspires me to keep going and to seize an opportunity that I see and that I want to talk to you a little bit about after this call <laughs> so um Boys, it, it, it's a real pleasure it's cheaper than paying for therapy you know just getting being able to this, ask this yeah. uh, answer questions about your life <laughs> so um, it's been a real yeah like we, we love meeting guests and kind of hearing their story and obviously the beauty of podcast is it's it's long form content right so we really get to know who you are mm. and i'm sure your followers will, will, will kind of appreciate getting to know who you are as an individual which you can never convey to, with tweets and kind of articles and written content uh but yeah that's right thank you imran and a massive thank you to our listeners as well 